Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we gather together this morning aware of our need for your grace, for your spirit, Lord, for your love, Lord, this week. Once again, we find ourselves mourning the death of another man. It should not have happened. And the questions, the anger and the pain that swirl around that throughout our nation and in Charlotte. And it just is another tragedy that causes us to say, why, O oh Lord? It causes us to see the rifts and complex issues that lead to violence and call our hearts out. Lord, we pray, Lord, for, for your peace, God. We pray for your justice. We pray for your resolution, Lord. We, we pray for our brothers and sisters, Lord, in Sovereign Grace Church of Charlotte who meet just three miles from where the shooting took place and are like our brothers in Charleston and like our brothers in Dallas and other churches, God, who, in New Orleans, Lord God, who found themselves and find themselves immersed in the work of peacemaking, Lord, the work of healing, Lord, the work of repentance, God. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would work through the churches, Lord, even as we gather together tonight, God, we want to be one of those churches where you are working in us and through us for the good of all people in our community, for the good of the mission of the gospel, for the healing of our land. Be with us, oh God, tonight as we steps that direction. Lord, guide us all by the power of your Spirit and the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Today we're continuing a mini-series in our study in Ephesians on the armor of God. As Tim outlined this in our first message in this series, because we live in an evil day occupied by the evil one, we need to stand firm in the fight by abiding in God's strength and putting on his armor. Now, I don't know anyone here, me included, who has to be convinced that we as Christians are in a battle. Paul is talking about warfare here. We have a place in the battle line and we are called to hold it. I'm a history buff and I read a lot about battles and have visited a lot of battlefields. Yes, people like me do that. A couple of weeks ago, I had a chance to go to the Antietam battlefield in Maryland with my friend CB, who's also a history buff. As a result of the Battle of Antietam in the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. The battle itself is known for some of the most horrific fighting of the war. In fact, it is the, the bloodiest single day of the Civil War. There's one area on the battlefield that's now called the Bloody Cornfield. 
where lines of Union and Confederate troops kept being thrown into the fight to the destruction of many. Now, what would happen is this was a cornfield where the stalks of corn were still above the average man's head. And so a line would go in, and once the line of soldiers went in between the height of the corn and the smoke of the battle, they literally couldn't see more than a foot or so in front of them, though it was broad daylight. And so they went into battle and found themselves totally lost and confused, couldn't figure out where they were supposed to go, being shot at by people they couldn't see. And so what would happen is the lines of battle that went in so orderly became quickly confused, and men began to panic. The result was they often just began shooting at each other. Their own lines were firing on themselves. One soldier described it this way. <clears throat> when the battle is raging all around, the consuming passion of the average man is to get out of the way. Between the physical fear of going forward and the moral fear of going backward, there's a predicament of exceptional awkwardness from which a hidden hole in the ground would be a wonderful outlet. Do you know where you are in the battle? Do you just want to get out and get out of the way? Is your present life a predicament of exceptional awkwardness? Would you love to find a hidden hole to duck into? Are you wondering how long you can stand? God wants to teach you how to use the armor He has given you for the battle through the instructions of His field general, the Apostle Paul. We're going to look at the first two elements of this armor today, and then Alex and Tim will be completing the picture in the coming weeks. So let's read again. We're going to look at Ephesians 6, verses 13 and 14. That's what we're going to focus on today. Ephesians 6, 13 and 14. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able... To withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, to stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, the first thing you notice in this passage is the purpose of the fight. We're to withstand the assaults of the enemy. Tim talked last week about our enemy, Satan, and his schemes and forces. The devil wants us to cut and run, to surrender, but we're called here to beat back the assault and hold our position, to stand in victory against anything the, de the enemy throws at us. In verse 13, we see we need the armor of God to withstand the enemy so that we can stand firm. The picture here is of a defensive position, always prepared for an inevitable assault. We need to be able to withstand the assault so that the advance of the gospel can continue. So, how did we get to this point? Well, one way to read the book of Ephesians is to see it as a chronicle of war. Ephesians 1 we see the army of God introduced and on the march. We, verses 1-1, we see that we're actually soldier saints under the leadership of King Jesus. The remaining part of that chapter, that long, glorious uh, display of what it means to be in Christ, is a description of the army, the fitness we have for battle, all that we have in Christ. We also see the strategic goal of the battle in verse 10 quoting, a plan for the fullness of time, 
to unite all things in Him, in Christ, things in heaven and on earth. And I think you should get from that that if all things are being united in Christ, then there's no room for an enemy at the end. This is a, this is a war that's meant to result in the def total defeat of the enemy. There is no compromise. There is no truce. There is no treaty. This is fight to the death. That's what we're fighting for. Wherever God fights, we fight. Chapter 2 then is the heat of the battle against the prince of the power of the air, as Paul says. In him, people are enslaved to his worldly influence, driven by fleshly passion, carrying out warlike deeds of darkness. But this isn't a battle ultimately against flesh and blood. It's not a battle against people because God has actually sent us as an army of liberation to overthrow the evil prince and rescue his slave soldiers, to enlist them into his army of saints where they're given positions of honor, given marching orders, given full rights as citizens of heaven, known personally by King Jesus because he chose and purchased each one of us by his own blood. Wherever God fights, we fight. Chapter 3 and into chapter 4, we see what happens when God takes territory. He builds together a holy body, the church, a band of brothers and sisters who represent Him on this earth, who carry out His instructions through which He astounds the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Where the church is, there is the active presence and government of God. People of God who walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. The church is God's occupying and advancing army in this world. Wherever God fights, we fight. Chapter 4 into chapter 6, where we see what is to characterize this citizen, soldier, saint's army. What we're about. We're people who live in unity and love, who speak and live truth, who increasingly mirror the character of Jesus Christ, who reject any vestiges of their former evil ways and live for righteousness and holiness. We know the devil is still snooping around looking for a foothold and God's army is committed to denying him what he wants. We live transformed relationships in the way we talk, in the way we handle our, our passions and our desires, in the way we relate to each other, in the way we build our marriages, in the way we prepare the next generation, in the way we conduct our business in the world. Wherever God fights, we fight. So by the time we get to this passage, we see the army of God on the ground of God's victory looking to advance in its mission. That's where we are. But the total victory has not been won. The enemy is still loose. He still lurks looking to deceive and destroy, to hold on to his own territory. So you and I are in a battle whether we want it or not. As one commentator said, it's because of God's victory in His Son that believers are in the battle at all. The fact that you're in a battle is not a sign that God isn't winning because God's winning that you've been placed in the line to fight. Wherever God fights, we fight. Commentator Frank Thielman says this, the battle, this is a great summary, the battle is against formidable foes who've mounted an attack against ground that the soldier's king has already won and occupied. The soldier's duty is to withstand the onslaught of that enemy and so to remain standing. Why? Because there's more to come. There's more territory to be won. There's more mission to be accomplished. There's more people who need to be liberated. There's more driving back of the enemy that needs to take place. So why does Field General Apostle Paul give these orders to take up the armor? Why do we need it? The reason is that we forget we're at war. 
A.W. Tozer said one time, we think of the world not as a battleground, but as a playground. We're not here to fight, we're here to frolic. We can't frolic and live a life worthy of the calling we have received. Tim summarized this calling last week as loving unity, moral purity, and role responsibility. There's nothing about a playground in those things. This is a battlefield, and we're in the middle of it. So over the past two weeks, Tim taught us a little bit about it. He taught us what it meant to stand two weeks ago. And then last week, he talked about what kind of enemy we're facing. And I hope you know that without the armor, you're not going to be able to stand when you're attacked. So we need to look at this armor, and we need to address what it means to take it up. Now, we need to look at a couple of tendencies that I see in the way we relate to this idea of the armor of God that I think are not helpful. So I'm going to call uh, two of them. One of them I'm going to call the charismatic armor. Now, I'm a charismatic. I speak in tongues. believe in full range of the gifts. So this isn't going to be a knock on charismatics. But there can be a lot of talk about spiritual warfare in charismatic circles. It seems like every week I get an email from somebody pointing me to a YouTube video where someone has just discovered a new tactic of Satan, usually in the government, and, and, uh, and if, if we don't see this, we're blind and we're going to get t- overtaken. And usually it's, I mean, every single week that happens. Um, it's a charismatic tendency to see everything we struggle with as a direct result of satanic attack. And this passage is a big part of whatever people do when they think they're doing spiritual warfare. Let me give you an example. I, when I first got saved, I, I went to a, a charismatic church in Atlanta. Good church, great folks. Uh, I was really built up and discipled there. Um, had a great group of fellowship, other folks in my age, in mid-20s, men and women. And we, we, we love God and we love serving God. Every six months or so, we would, we would take a Friday night and we would go, get together to engage in spiritual warfare. And what that meant is that we would all gather together and we would sing and worship and then we would actually read this passage of Scripture. We would read this and confess this passage of Scripture and then we'd start to pray. And the, the purpose of the prayer was to ask God to show us where spiritual strongholds were in each other. So we would pray, and then, and then you might get an impression uh, that, that so-and-so might be struggling with this particular uh, demonic activity or this particular oppression, and, so, and, so, and then we'd pray for one another. So, so that would happen, and you'd pray, and, and I found that a lot of times God really did do good work in my heart. But I'll tell you, be honest with you, it wasn't very sound, particularly one time where, where uh, we, were, we were praying, and this one sister in Got, a, got, a, got an impression, she felt from the Lord, that there was a brother, not me, but a brother in the, in the group who was struggling with the demon of lust. And so next thing you know, all the women are around this guy laying hands on him, casting out the demon of lust. Now, that's awkward. I'm glad it wasn't me. <laughs> now, again, there, there's, that's a better use of Friday nights than most men and women in their 20s do. So I'm not down in that. And God did some things that were great there. But I don't recommend it as a practice. See, the problem is that the charismatic ten- tendency is to give Satan more credit than he deserves. The next thing you know, you start using the armor in ways that the armor is not intended. You take off the belt of truth and you start whacking the devil with it. You take off the breastplate of righteousness and you start hammering him over the head with it. 
The idea is you take, you take the gospel shoes and you throw them at the devil. Listen, we have armor so we don't have to focus on the enemy. It's God's armor, and He wants us to pay attention to Him so that He can tell us how to use it. There's another tendency I would call the Calvinistic armor. And that's a tendency to over-theologize this section. You kind of read it just as Paul's describing what God has done for us, but not really with what we're supposed to do with it. Now, I went to a Calvinist seminary. I am a Calvinist. All five points. I'm a charismatic Calvinist. Yes, they do exist. The great thing about Calvinism is that it always starts with what God has done. And brothers and sisters, that's where we always need to start. What God has done. But sometimes Calvinists don't quite get to what we should be doing. Don't quite make it there. So the Calvinistic armor is kind of like it's it's kind of like Hollywood movie armor. It looks great. You look good in it. Makes you look like a soldier, feel like a soldier. But it really doesn't do anything. Because we're not really fighting. The outcome's already determined. The script's already written. We know what's going to happen. We don't really fight. We just kind of wear it and walk around happy that we're on the winning side. Now the problem is that the Calvinistic armor takes out some important stuff that needs to be in there. Namely, that we need to actually do something with the armor. When Paul says in verse 13, having done all, and he says that right there in the text, having done all, he's not talking about what God has done. He's talking about what we have done. Having done all, we We take up the armor, we put it into action. Now, there's another slight problem with the Calvinistic armor is that Calvin didn't teach it. In his own commentary on this text, Calvin, John Calvin writes, and finally, every man must strive, knowing that although we ourselves do nothing, yet God works in such a way by us that He will not have us be like logs of wood, but will have us exercise our faith and be like men of war to serve Him in battle so that the difficulties we encounter do not restrain us from keeping on our course, but that we resist all the ambushes and assaults directed against us. That's active. That's using the armor. So we don't want to be charismatic Armor people, we don't want to be Calvinistic in the way I described them. Armor people. What do we want to be? How do we handle the armor of God? Some, some brief textual principles here just to help guide us. Now one is this. This is a descriptive language, not technical language. And by that I mean this. People often take each piece of armor more literally than they should. I know some folks who literally put the armor on every day. They physically put on the belt of righteousness, of truth. They put on the breastplate. They take up the shield of faith. They put on the shoes of the gospel. That's great. It's a great thing to do, particularly if you get an aerobic workout out of it. But, but I've also seen people who found themselves lying or, or caught in a lie, and they think, well, the problem is I never put on the belt of truth today. That's why I lied. I didn't have my armor on. And 
That's over-literalizing what Paul is doing here. Paul uses warfare analogies throughout his writings. Throughout the, Paul's writings, you see those warfare analogies. He uses them various ways. They're meant to describe the effect and experience of what the Christian faces in this life. But he doesn't like nail them down to specific things. For example, the, the, uh, the breastplate that we hear, see here in 1 Thessalonians, he talks about the breastplate as well. But he doesn't call it the breastplate of righteousness. He calls it the, the, the breastplate of faith and love. So he'll use the imagery in different ways. And so we want to make sure that we don't over-literalize what Paul is saying and therefore apply it in unhelpful ways. Another thing that's important is the armor of God's probably best understood as God's armor that He's fit for us. It isn't our armor ultimately, it's God's armor, but He's fitted for us. Now this, that means this armor isn't just off the rack. It's not, you know, it's not hand-me-downs. It's not, well, it one size fits all. No, God designs your armor for you. Whatever your weaknesses are, whatever your struggles are, whatever your temptations are, whatever your vulnerabilities are, whatever your place in line is. You're not dealing with some kind of armor that doesn't fit. You're not David in the armor that they tried to make him wear when he fought Goliath. No, this is armor that belongs to you from God. And so it's good for your particular needs all the time. might be able to say it this way. God has given me everything I need in my fight against the enemy, but I have to put it in practice to stand. God's given me everything I need, but I have to put it into practice. It's from God, but it's for me. So what's the belt of truth and breastplate of righteousness? If we consider how Paul has used the word truth, and one of the ways you try to you go at this is you try to see if, if a word shows up in, in, in a text, how is it used initially by the same author in that text? How is he using it? That'll give me an idea of the, of the frame of reference for how I should understand that text. So Paul uses the word truth several times in Ephesians. In Ephesians 1.13, he's talking about the gospel. The word of truth, the gospel. In chapter 4, verse 15, he calls believers to literally truth one another. To help each other live in the truth they already know. And then in chapter 4, verses 21 and 25, he calls people essentially to live lives of integrity. So you see, truth, even in the letter of Ephesians, is used in several different ways. So we have to understand what he means by the belt of truth within a range of understanding of how Paul uses truth. Let's look at righteousness. And Ephesians talks about righteousness both as the basis for our standing in the Lord, our righteousness in Christ, and he calls us to live righteous lives. So truth and righteousness are both something given to us as a benefit of the gospel and something we're called to act upon as a call of the gospel. We must see truth and righteousness both given to us because of what the gospel has meant. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sin. His resurrection for our eternal life. His, the forgiveness of sin. The imputation of the righteousness of God. The truth in Christ for us must make a difference in how we live day to day. If it isn't making a difference, it isn't functioning as armor. Truth and righteousness are closely linked in Paul's analogy, this warfare analogy. In in actual armor in Paul's time, the belt and breastplate combined 
to form sort of an inner defense for the soldier. The belt is worn around as worn as kind of the foundation of the armor. Everything sort of attaches in one way or another to the belt. Anything that can attach. So if you have a scabbard for your sword, it attaches to the belt. Other things, knives, all the things attached to the belt. The breastplate attaches to the belt, is secured by the belt. When the belt's loose or off, none of the rest of the armor is really available to be used. None of it really functions. So he says, gird yourself with truth in other places because that's what prepares you to fight. You need the belt of truth. You need the foundational aspect of truth in your life. The breastplate was often called in Roman times the heart protector, interestingly. What's interesting is that the the breastplate is not the first line of defense. It's not like a soldier goes out and says, okay, I'm ready, shoot at me. I got my breastplate on. No, we'll we'll hear later in, in, in this series, there's a shield. You take up the shield of faith. I'm not going to preach into that. But the idea is we have something to protect us in a shield. The breastplate is there for the things that get past the shield, the things the soldier can't see, the things that he's blind to, the things he's not prepared for. There's a blessed breastplate of righteousness that's meant to defend us when we can't defend ourselves. It protects us from attacks that we don't expect. Maybe the best way to understand the belt of truth and breastplate of righteousness is this. Let the truth, who Jesus is and what He's done for you, govern every area of your life so that you believe and live and speak only what is true. Now, I'd love to drop in there and spend the rest of our time just talking about what that means practically. We're going to have to go on. But it means that the truth needs to look like truth in your life. If you're living a false life in any kind of way, you're going to find yourself really, really in a battle with the enemy. And you're probably going to lose. Let righteousness, the moral, ethical character of Christ, which is imputed to you so that you are declared righteous by faith in the gospel, let it motivate you to a holy life. Let it motivate you to a righteous life. What is righteous? What what do you need to do that is right? That's what you should be doing. That's That's how you wear the blessed breastplate of righteousness. You act righteously. How do you put on the belt of truth? You speak truthfully. You live truthfully. You live honestly. You live with integrity. This is how they work. This is what it means to put them into play. Now, and they're needed. The reason Paul begins here is because we are most vulnerable when we tolerate untruthfulness and unrighteousness in our lives. We are vulnerable to anything the enemy throws at us. If we're not girded by truth and standing righteously. And he lists our vulnerabilities in Ephesians. Let me just give you a quick rundown. And this is just from Ephesians. I'm not going to say the text. I'm just going to walk down through it. We are vulnerable because of the passions of the flesh. Because of racial and ethnic hostility. Because the, the attraction to false doctrine. Because of worldly thinking, sensuality, greed and impurity, deceitful desires unresolved anger and bitterness, dishonesty, divisive speech, vengeful actions, sexual morality, covetousness, immoral speech, entertaining ourselves with what God calls darkness, willful foolishness, substance abuse, unbiblical approaches to marriage, family, and work. Those are all vulnerabilities. And if we're not walking in truth, living out truth, standing in righteousness, living righteously, all those are vulnerabilities to us. We've got to live it. We've got to live it, folks. Now, note that all that list I just shared, the devil doesn't cause one of those things. 
He doesn't cause any of that. Paul attributes that to us. That's what we're capable of. We don't need the devil to do that. He could could let us go. And if we don't live in truth and righteousness, we're going to start looking like that. There's no devil made me do it. There's only I made me do it. Now, he does scheme and he tempts and he seduces us and it's real and we've got to be aware of it, but we're the ones who give the devil a foothold. He has no foothold unless we give it to him. When we don't live according to the truth and don't pursue righteousness, we open ourselves up to the devil's activity. A man once said something to me that's always stuck with me that I thought was very helpful. He said, the Bible calls us to resist the devil and he will flee, but it calls us to flee temptation. I found that interesting. Temptation, flee temptation means what is within us that we struggle with. We have armor against the devil, but nothing but running away when it comes to temptation. To the devil, we can say, back off. To temptation, we need to say, feats don't fail me now. If we don't flee temptation, we'll be vulnerable to the devil as well. He'll just jump on the back of that temptation and ride us right into the ground. It gets really ugly. Your problem ultimately doesn't start with the devil. It starts with whether you're living in truth and righteousness. Over the years, I've learned to see when the attacks of the enemy have, are having an effect on my life and in others' lives. I've seen countless times in counseling. But I've seen them in me most of all. So I'm going to give you three schemes of the enemy that you will face. And I'm going to give you two because there's telltale things you'll th- say. Or if you don't say them, you'll at least be thinking them. Let me tell you this, if any of these things you find yourself saying with regularity or thinking with regularity, then you're probably, if not already succumbing, you're under attack. So here's three schemes. The first is the scheme of I need, as in I need you to love me. I need to be happy. I need more. I need, I need, I need, I need. See, the belt of truth reminds us that our only true need is forgiveness of sin before a holy God through the atoning death of the Son on the cross and to be brought from death to life through the work of the Holy Spirit because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we are really truthful, we're going to call anything beyond that a want, not a need. It's okay to say I want things. I want things. A lot of things I want. I don't need them. I need to be close to God. I need to love God with my whole heart, mind, and strength. Love my neighbor as myself. That's what I need. That's what you need. The breastplate of righteousness is going to remind you that your righteousness is in Christ alone. We We care more about pleasing Him in any situation than what we think we need in that situation. But when we let the devil's I need scheme work in our lives... We become consumed with discontent and lusts because we turn the things we want into idols of need. If you feel or hear the word, I need, coming, you're in a battle. Second one, the scheme of I deserve, as in, I deserve respect. I deserve to be noticed. I deserve my rights to be vindicated. 
I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. Belt of Truth teaches us that we only deserve the wrath of God and that all good things that come to us are but the overflow of God's mercy toward us. The breastplate of righteousness teaches us that we don't want what we deserve. You don't want what you deserve. Because the only thing you deserve is the wrath of God. What you want is what you don't deserve. The mercy and grace and kindness and love of God. If you talk about I deserve, and it lists a bunch of other things, that's the devil. You allow the devil a stronghold of pride so that he can wage war on your faith through self-righteousness and self-worship. Third thing, the scheme of I can't. As in, I can't resist the temptation. I can't endure this trial. I can't handle this marriage. I can't go on. I can't trust God. Can't obey his word. The belt of truth reminds us that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. The breastplate of righteousness reminds us that God doesn't demand success, He calls us to faithfulness and extends mercy when we fail. He's already got failure in mind, He knows you're going to fail, He's already got a plan for your failure. Don't worry about I can't. God knows what you can do. When we are comfortable with I can't, we give the devil a foothold of unbelief in our lives. So he can wreak havoc on our faith through discouragement and despair. So brothers and sisters, we must stand against I need, I deserve, and I can't. If you hear yourself, if you hear your brother or your sister using those words, and they're blind to what they're really saying, graciously, gently help them to see. Is that really what the Word of God says? Is that really aligning yourself with the truth and righteousness? Is that really wearing your armor and putting it into action? So I'm going to close here with one, conf- one application, one practical thing you can do. And... You're not going to like it. I can tell you right now. It's a way that you can stand against the enemy and anything he throws at you. Okay, here it is. Confess your sin. Sorry. What do you do with the fact that you're a sinner? What do you do with that? Yeah, we're saved by grace. We're set apart for God's glory. We're children of God. But we're still sinners. We struggle with sin. We do sinful things. We don't do what God wants us to do all the time. And we do What God doesn't want us to do some of the time as well. That's sin. Nobody here is not a sinner. What do you do with that? Here's what the devil wants you to do. He wants you to do anything but acknowledge it. He wants you to to give in to it. He wants you to give up. He wants you to escape. He wants you to justify what you're doing. He wants you to hide. He wants you to to wallow. He wants you to beat yourself up. He wants you to to beat other people up. He wants you to self-atone. He wants you to deny the word. He wants you to curse God. He wants you to do anything but just own the reality that you're a sinner every single day. It's not your identity, but it is your experience. 
You see, if he can keep you from confessing the obvious, then he's got you where he wants you. Then he can recreate your view of life around what he wants you to be. If he can get you to deny the truth, he can fill your life with anything. Because he's the father of lies. He's the accuser of the brethren. That's what he's up to. So at the moment you're in the battle, this is where the belt of truth can help you. The belt of truth will remind you of something. In the words of 1 John 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We don't even need the devil for that. We can deceive, we're deceiving ourselves when we say we have no sin. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see that? You see truth and righteousness embedded in the act of confessing sin. The armor of God working for you when you confess your sin. The breastplate of righteousness says, why not confess? The truth says, this is the way you, you, you push against the devil. The breastplate of righteousness says, why not confess? You're a sinner. You sin. God sees it. Who are you going to hide it from? You can confess knowing God forgives you in Christ and cleanses you because of the work of Jesus. So confess boldly. Don't hold back. Confess boldly. Confess often. Confess specifically. Let's not be people who play act as if the war is just a movie. Let's fight the battle. After all, God covers you with His righteousness and He's going to make you more righteous by His power. See, when you confess your sin, you deny the devil a foothold. You deny him anything he can do. How can he lie to you about how bad you are because you're already saying, I'm worse than you think. How can he lie about what you're capable of when you say, I'm capable of anything? How can he lie to you about God's disapproval of you because you said, yeah, apart from grace, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a condemned sinner. You, everything you say in confession, because it's gospel work, will push back the enemy. So how do we want to confess? First of all, we confess to God. We want to be regular confessors to God. We want to, we want to part of our conversation with God should be actively talking about our sin. Lord, you know. Lord, you know. One of the things I do is, in my devotions, I read a book I have a book, a little book called Valley of Vision, which is a version of it here. It's just a bunch of poems, actually prayers, 300 years old, uh, of people who took this seriously. And, and I started reading it as confession every morning. It was when I read my Bible and I pray and I, and I intercede and those kind of things. I also take time where I just open this up and I, and I read these prayers. And these guys are serious about confession. In fact, when I first started doing it, I, I'd open up and I'd start to say start to read it as a prayer, and I'd start to say it, and I go, ah, I just want to shut it up. That's not me. That's not, ah, ooh, ooh, God. I can't say that about myself. But you do it for a while. You start to realize, oh, yeah, that's me today. Yep, yep, that one. Yep, 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 that's me. Yep, 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 that's good right there. Yep, yep. Ooh, ooh, yeah, yeah. What's happening? What's happening? I'm becoming comfortable in my own skin. Why? Because I know that's not who I am in Christ. I am in Christ. I'm holy. I'm set apart. I'm loved by God. He knows my sin. Let's just be real. Let's just be honest. So confess to God. Find a way in your own devotional time to be actively confessing what you know to be true about yourself. You're a sinner. You need grace. Not a big deal. Second thing, confess to people you wrong. We sin against each other. The devil wants us to pretend that we don't, pretend that it doesn't matter if we did, pretend like God doesn't care, pretend like we can justify what we do because of what they did. Those are schemes, brothers and sisters. They're schemes to get us off the point. You wrong somebody, you own it. You go back and confess. I did that this week. I, 
I, I failed somebody in a pastoral situation this week, and, uh, and God convicted me on it. He, and that, it's interesting. You know what happens? When we, if we're not used to this, we feel conviction like it's really, it's the devil. You know, I was there, I was there and, and I actually woke up in the morning with this conviction that I had not followed up with somebody that I really needed to follow up with, and they had been counting on me to do it, and, um, and, uh, and, and they're not part of this church, it's my other church. Um, but, uh, but the first thing I thought is, get behind me, Satan. You know, this doesn't feel good. But I've learned that, oh, when God does that, he's, he's actually, that's him. It's Satan the one that wants me to say, get behind me, Satan. Satan loves to tell you to say, get behind me, Satan, to God. He loves doing that. Because the Spirit of God is going to be gently saying, you know what? You sinned. Confess. So I was able to go back to that person and, and confess my failure and, and restore the relationship where the enemy wanted to divide. You see, the enemy wants us to avoid confessing our sin to one another because he loves to weaken God's army through discord and bitterness and division. We don't want to give him the ground. If you're wrong, confess you're wrong, and the devil won't get a foothold. And then third, we want to confess to the brethren. We want to be people who confess easily. Who, who, that's one of the reasons we have community groups. You ever think about this? Community groups is sometimes it's about confession. It's coming in and saying, God, you know, I've had a bad week. I feel like God has really been convicting me on something. I haven't been responsive. I feel like I, this, this happened this week at work. This happened. I just want you to know about it. I need your prayer. I'm in the battle. I'm losing ground. I, I feel the enemy. I'm hearing the word. I need come out of my life so much right now. Can you pray for me? I'm hearing I deserve come out in my relationship with my wife or my husband, my kids. I'm, and I need help because I'm in a battle. I need help. That's confession in, in the fellowship. We need one another for that. That's why we have community groups. If you're not in a community group, you're not going to have that benefit of being in this church. You're going to kind of be fighting your battles on your own. That's a hard way to fight. Let's confess to God. Let's confess when we're wrong. And let's confess to the brethren. Because by the grace of God, with the armor of God, you can stand. Amen. Amen.